0: church and welcome to sunday school unfiltered yay i love this one and uh, today is a rancorous and racy one as we're looking at joseph and his amazing technicolor dream coat so You already see we've messed up that story when we think it's an amazing technicolor dream code, and I find that so often these Sunday school stories, they get a little bit altered, a little bit changed, a little bit watered down, and so our heart today is to be looking at some of these famous stories, these popular Sunday school stories, and really seeing the full measure of what they teach and the full range of kind of not just the application, but even just the nuances that are found in the story. Now, today's is huge, right? It takes up 14 chapters, so we're doing 14 chapters in about 2,400 seconds, all right? So, trying to jam it all in there. So right now, I'm going to go ahead and just settle this down, pray, and we're just going to leap right into it, because we're covering all sorts of ground today. So if you would pray with me, I would love that. Let's Go ahead and do it right now. Jesus, I thank you so much for the fact that there are these stories that we come across, That when we really do a a kind of a deep dive, when we notice the nuances, we see the subtleties, uh, that in there we also learn stories for our own lives. We, We realize how you intersect with us. We realize what it is you call us to do, especially in the hard spaces of life when things aren't fair, aren't just, aren't easy, and how you remind us of people who stepped up in the tough and sought to be what you wanted them to be. I pray that that's what we learn today and we remember that you are with us in all of our circumstances. And so teach us the story today, open our hearts and minds so that we would be so much of what you want us to be in this world because we realize you've left us here to be change agents for you. So help us to do that, Jesus, in your good and perfect name. Amen. story of Abraham and the sacrifice of his son, Isaac, in which he did not need. And his faithfulness was not simply that he believed God, but he, his blessing and plan and promise underway. He's like, you have the son, Isaac, and because you're willing to give him up to me, I'm going to give everything unto you. I'm going to make you a great nation, and you're going to outnumber like the sands of the sea and the stars of the heavens. And so, man, the story gets underway with his son, Isaac. And Isaac eventually grows up, he grows older, and he has a family of his own. And in his family, he has two boys. And you're going to probably know those names. It's Esau and Jacob. Apparently, Esau was a hairy, not a terribly attractive kid, right? But Jacob was a nasty little liar, which should throw us off a little bit because we think about these biblical characters sometimes. We're like, but Jacob was the child of promise. Jacob was the one that God does his lineage through. And I'm like, right. And when you read the story, Jacob is not a great guy. In fact, honestly, when you read the story, Esau seems to be the better person than Jacob. And many times in the Bible, central figures are not great people. But it reminds us of the power of God's grace and how God will use some of the most clumsy, unclean, undeveloped people to do some really great things. And he does that with Jacob. And so after Jacob has some shenanigans and does some dumb stuff and everything else, finally one day God literally kicks his butt by the river. Like he gets in a wrestling match with God. And God sort of cripples him, but from that it humbles him. And there in that space, he begins then to really focus on what he's supposed to do, and so he begins to start his family. And we pick this up then in Genesis chapter 37, starting at verse 1. It says, So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father Isaac, who was then the son of Abraham, where his father had lived as a foreigner. This is the account of Jacob and his family. And to understand where he comes out of like a two-sibling environment, his family is big. It's like Duggar family big. It's big, big, big all the way around, right? And there's all sorts of drama in a big family like this. And inside this family, there's a particular boy, and his name is Joseph. He's an average Joe for us today, and we're going to see why he's average by the end. Now, he does some extraordinary stuff, but there's a thing or two that makes him average, But when Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks and he worked for his half-brothers who were the sons of his father's wives, Billah and Zipla. So now you have like Duggars meet like sister wives in the story, right? And it's just weird dynamic of multiple wives, multiple kids. In fact, there's 11 sons total and they all work sort of dad's ranch. And now Yellowstone is a part of sister wives and everything else, the Duggar family. Uh, In this, this young man has probably too many moms that are always trying to mother him in some capacity or another, but he also is a teenager. And as all teenage boys tend to do, they want to seek the uh, approval and the affirmation of his father. And he does this by being an average Joe who's also a tattletale. Verse 37, 2 says, Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Right? So this is how he gets some good graces. And, and, and part of this, I'm go, I go like, that's kind of cool, the fact that he's looking out for his old man, he knows his older brothers take advantage of some stuff maybe, and so he's like, Dad, you got to know they're doing this. But the other thing about this is in kind of the Hebrew, the way it's worded is he only cataloged the bad things and would tell his dad about that. So it wasn't like the good things the brothers did that he would tell his dad or whatever else. No, he was that typical younger brother that was trying to bust all the older brothers by, oh, dad, look what they're doing there, and just ratting them out, right? So, average Joe is a little bit of a rat for his brother, so it's a little bit difficult, creates a lot of tension in there because he's opportunistic. He's sort of elevating himself. And it seems to work because from this, we also see that he's a daddy's boy in the scenario. It says, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children, because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So part of this is like, I still got it. I can have a child when I'm much older. But he goes out of his way then to actually showcase the fact that he had favorites. I have three kids, right? And, and there are times where I'll tell, like, my son Gray, dude, you're my favorite. And he's like, right on. But then the next day I'm like, no more, now your sister Emma's my favorite. And then that that honors my favorite now. Like, I'm always rotating it because they're all my favorite. Not every day, all the time, in every way. But, you know, you have your days where it's rough, but other days where it's great. But they're all my favorite. But for this guy here, he's like, you know what? I literally have a favorite. And that one is my favorite. And he flaunts it. Because it says, one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, which was a beautiful robe right so you know it's bad when the other brothers are sitting there and then this little brother like the second to the last gets a special gift and nobody else gets it and the dad's like well yeah i gave it to him because he is my favorite that's a lot of tension man that's a lot of drama brewing in the room and while we tend to see this as a coat of many colors it literally is more a coat of many stripes and the idea of stripes is going to be rank So if you are second to last in the rank of the family, it means you get the scraps, man. But for your father to say, oh, you get the coat of rank, suddenly the lowest of the bunch is elevated above every other brother. He's now in charge. He is like foreman of the ranch. And all the big brothers have to answer to this little brother squirt named Jojo, right? This is gonna be frustrating. And so... It says his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them, and they could not say a kind word to him. Now now in this, I think there's something about our human nature that it does kind of strike me that uh, it's weird how the father is doing all of this, loving this one at the cost of the others, giving a gift to the one at the cost of the others, and yet they're angry at the recipient, not the giver which I do think is interesting, but that's kind of our nature sometimes. We go, well, I don't like that you have that, and I don't have that. They should be mad at their dad, but instead they're mad at their brother, and they hate him for it. And so you see the dynamic. He's constantly highlighting how here's all the bad things they're doing, Dad. And they're looking at him, and they're like, well, we see where Dad does all the good things for you, and so we hate you because of it. There's a lot of tension in this space. And so they're constantly at odds with him. They're sick of him. They're just tired of him. And then it gets worse. And it gets worse because this average Joe is also a dreamer. It says, one night Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him even more. So he's like, fellas, fellas, you got to listen to this though, right? He says, I had this dream. We were all out in the field and we were tying up bundles of grain when suddenly my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered around me and all bowed down to mine shut up jojo right so he's like what do you guys think right and the brothers responded do you think you will be our king do you actually think you're gonna reign over us and they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. So it's both. One is he's kind of an elitist. I'm going to be better than you. I'm going to be over the top of you. And I'm always telling dad about your like, bad behavior. So it's just, man, they're sick of their little brother, right? So how could he even break it more? Well, he had another dream. And again, he told his brothers about it. He says, listen, though, this one's even better, right? I had another dream. The sun, the moon, and the 11 stars all bowed low before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers, and his father scolded him. He goes, what kind of a dream is that, right? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? It's like, listen, Jojo, I love you, but you're stupid. I'm not, I'm the dad here. Yes, maybe your brothers, they might bow, they're bad, you're good, I love you more, but I'm not bowing to you. Thus, while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what this dream could be about. What is this whole scenario or story that Joseph is seeing? See, when I look at this, I realize that, that Joseph is running into um, what I call the leader dreamer challenge. See, the leader-dreamer challenge is when a group of people say, we want a leader, until they get one. We want somebody that dreams big, and then somebody who dreams big shows up and they're like, whoa. Because when you get a leader who's a real leader, they tend to lead, and not everybody loves their leadership. Or sometimes you get a dreamer that sees a real big dream, and people go, whoa, but to accomplish that dream, that's going to be change, and change is pain, and pain in the short term is awful, and we don't want it, and there's resistance and he's facing that kind of resistance. And so leaders and dreamers are a mixed bag. Part of the problem for Joseph though, isn't simply that those are his traits because those aren't bad enough themselves, but he's also a young man, right? He's 17. And often when you have a leader dreamer and they're young, they lack tact, they lack wisdom. They haven't been wounded enough in life to be wise in their leadership. I, mean, I remember, you know, I, I became a leader pretty young and, and I was so idealistic and so focused and from that I would be kind of pharisaical and legalistic and it was this way and not that way and I drew hard lines and everything else. I just didn't have enough of life to kind of beat the tar out of me to kind of smooth the rough edges to make me a more effective leader and dreamer. I was just kind of like, no, this is my way, the way and I was more right than everybody else and that's sort of where Joseph sat and God's gonna do some things to temper his leadership in the process. So he can have a better delivery as a leader and a dreamer But it's not this day On this day, he's sort of braggart about it And his brothers are frustrated It says that they are jealous And by jealous, it doesn't mean they covet what he has right? What this actually means is there's more of an envy factor And envy is, you know what, I don't want you to have what you have Right? If I can't have it, nobody can have it. And I don't want you to have it. So they're just hot and hostile toward their little brother. They resent his good fortune, and they want to burn it all to the ground. Well, so soon after this, chapter 37, verse 12, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks in Shechem. And when they had been gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, your brothers are pasturing pasturing rather uh, the sheep at Shechem. Get ready, and I will send you to them. And so he tells his dad, "I'm ready to go. I'll ride him out to you some more. I'll raid their case because I got stripes, bro. I'm in charge. I got high rank. Let's go do it, right?" So he has this act of obedience, which is great, but no sooner does he really get there that he gets this butt kicking, right? This is when Joseph's brothers saw him coming; they recognized him in the distance ask him. Here comes that dreamer. Come on, let's kill him. And there's, and when I was mad at my younger brothers, I would do stuff like spit in their chocolate milk when they weren't looking, right? Or over the shower curtain and just douse them. I mean, just all kinds, but I never were looking at my brother Adam and be like, I'm going to kill you, bro. Like, and this doesn't happen. But these guys are so deep in it. They're like, here comes a little braggart fancy jacket. We're going to off him. And so he's walking down the road, and they're forming up a death panel. But then it says, when Reuben, big brother, heard about their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. He said, let's not kill him. Why would we want to shed any blood? We're like, finally, a sensible person. He says, no, let's just go throw him in that empty cistern over there in the wilderness, and then he'll die without us laying a hand on him. I'm like, not really coming to the rescue, but whatever. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing, and then they grabbed him and they threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. And so you picture the scene, right? This idea of ripped the robe is, is descriptive of like a dog ripping meat from a bone. So there wasn't just like, let's slip this off, Jojo. And, you know, it was cruel. And then they grab him like a mob, Right? And then they throw him somewhere between 8 and 20 feet down into a hole that has no water in the bottom, so it's a hard hit. I don't know how long that scene took. I don't know if it was 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, but those handful of minutes are now going to shape the next 20 years of Joseph's life and everybody else in the equation. And in fact, it goes further. It's going to shape the next several hundred years for the nation of Israel and the plans of God. And so these brothers... They beat him, they strip him, they chuck him. And after a hard day's work of beating up your little brother, what do you do? It says in verse 25, they sat down to eat. <laughs> I think that's, like, like, this story will have multiple times where somebody's talking about food. And I think it's just so weird. Like, hey, you just beat the clothes off your baby brother. What are you going to do? I don't know who's got the Lunchables. You know, like, there's just this attitude of like, okay, we're just moving on like life's normal. And so they sit down to eat. And as they looked up, they saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. And it was a group of Ishmaelites. Now you may forget but Abraham had two sons. He had Ishmael and Isaac. And he sent Ishmael off kind of unjustly, because the line is going to come through Isaac. And now here's an heir of Isaac who's going to be rescued by Ishmael's heirs. So God still uses the cast-off son. In fact, if it isn't for the line of Ishmael, the line of Isaac goes nowhere. So God's still using Ishmael to fulfill his plans through the line of Isaac, through the line of Jacob and Joseph. And so they're coming through, and they're traitors, and they're going from Gilead down to Egypt. So Judah, another one of the big brothers, says, well, what will we gain by killing our brother? We have to cover up the crime then. Instead of hurting him, let us sell him off to the Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother. He is our own flesh and blood. And so the brothers agreed. All right, we won't kill him. We'll just get rid of him. But in this, he will be presumed dead. And so when the traders came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt And then the brothers killed a young goat And dipped Joseph's robe in the blood And then they sent the beautiful robe to the father With this message Look, we found this Doesn't this belong to your son? Oh, they're so good at this The father recognized it immediately Yes, he said, this is my son's robe A wild animal must have eaten him Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces Then Jacob tore his clothes And dressed himself in burlap And he mourned deeply for his his loss and, And did it for apparently a very long time And so, this robe that was given in deep love, torn in burning hate, becomes the tool of a wicked deception. This father thinks his son is dead. These brothers are just kind of going about business, like, oh, we don't know what happened. It's so sad. All right, just conniving all the way around. And the dreamer then becomes a slave. It says in verse 36 Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt and Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. Now, I, I stop here for a minute, uh, because I, I, I can't help but think about Here's this guy who's trying to do his best. He's trying to use his gifts. Uh, he's not doing it well. He, he's not always polished in his delivery or anything else. But what it's led to is him being hated by his family, betrayed, beaten, uh, just abandoned, And now he's sold as a slave. And if you're in Joseph's shoes, you may have an attitude after a while that says, what gives God? Like you gave me these dreams. I just did my job. Now I'm in bad straits. What's the deal? I'm suffering. I'm in pain. I'm hated. Where's God when it hurts? Like that's gonna be the natural question. Where is God in this space? And that's when the author of the story steps in to say, well, guess what? In that space, in that misery, the Lord was with Joseph. It may not look like it. It may not feel like it. You may not see God or sense him in the most overt way, but he's in the space with Joseph. And and I think that's a really valuable thing for us to remind ourselves of, because you know what? There are times in life that are hard and unfair and you have things come your way that you didn't ask for and people are gonna handle you in a hostile way or a cruel way and you're like, God, where are you at? And he's like, I'm with you right now in this, right? I'm working in the margins. I might be a little bit like kind of behind the scenes and it may not feel like the story's going the way you want or you think anything good could come from the story but let me tell the story through you and let me keep moving as you are moving along in life for Joseph God is present. A- a- and the way that then this plays out in the story is presence of God becomes the favor of God. So he gets thrown into this new situation. He's working for this dude Potiphar. And it says he succeeded in everything that he did as he served in the home of the Egyptian master. And Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything that he did. This pleased Potiphar. So soon he made Joseph his personal assistant. He put him in charge of the entire household and everything that he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless that household for Joseph's sake. All of his household affairs ran smoothly. His crops and livestock flourished, right? So then Potiphar said, I'm giving you complete authority or administrative responsibility over everything that I own. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat, right? I love it. It's like pizza rolls or Hot Pockets today. You know, like it's making decisions. But notice how fast he's climbing the corporate ladder. He goes from slave to assistant to executive. And his leadership is getting more polished in the process. He's learning how to administer better And so while it was terrible that he gets abandoned by his brothers and sold off to slavery, Joe's life is looking good in the valley of the Egyptian sun now. Like suddenly, hey, things are looking up. And not just his life, but his person. He looks good, apparently, in the Egyptian sun as well because it says Joseph was a very handsome man and he was well built. Too much description for me. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. And she says, come and sleep with me. I demand it this is the part we cut out of children's church, all right? So, but she's like, not just seductive, she's like cougar seductive, man. She's like hardcore in this whole equation. And I think about Joseph, and I go, okay, he's young, right? He, he's, he's, you know, his testosterone levels are high at that age. He's had a rough life. A lot of injustices have come his way. This would be very flattering, You might even feel like, hey, this is going to make me feel more alive. This is a tempting scenario. And this is a woman who has some power as well. There's all sorts of things that could really pull him into this. But just as his previous hardship revealed his character, now this current temptation is going to require his character at a whole new level. But because he has character, he has convictions. And so in verse eight, it says, Joseph refused. He says, look, My master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you're his wife, right? He says, how could he do such a uh, wicked thing? It would be a great sin. And not just a great sin against Potiphar, a great sin against God. So he says, I'm trusted, so no. And you're married, so no. And I love how he brings in, and this would be a sin against God, so no. See, I love this because this is the first time he mentions God in the story, right? He's not really invoked the name of God necessarily up to this point, but now he does. And he's like, I still have a God who's looking out for me and I don't wanna disappoint him. And what I love about this is it would have been just as easy for him to say, you know what? I don't care what God thinks, cause you know what? He has not helped me thus far. Yes, he's with me, but I've had this and I've had that and I'm not with my family and I've sold into slavery. Forget what God thinks, but he cares very much what God thinks. And so he's like, no, I'm not going to do this because it would crush the heart of God. I would rather please him, even though it means to disappoint you. But the pressure is immense because it says in verse 10, she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, right? And he's like, listen, I'm not just a piece of meat. I'm a person, you know, and she's just being what she's being right she's very driven but he refused to sleep with her and he kept out of her way as much as possible but one day when no one else was around he went to do his work and she came and she grabbed him by his cloak and she demanded come on sleep with me i mean she is really she's pushing man joseph tore himself away but left his cloak in her hand and he ran from the house so good you split but bad you're now going to be framed When she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out for the servants. And soon all the men come running in and she says, look, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us all. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me and she kept the cloak with her until her husband came home and then she told him the story. So this is the second time Joe has lost his robe, right? Right? Like, this is a story, man. And now it's the second time that he's going to land himself in a pit. Because he's falsely accused. She says, that Hebrew slave you brought into this house, he came in here to fool around with me. Which I think that's just funny. The Bible says, fool around, let's fool around. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving the cloak with me. And Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he Remained Now, there's all sorts of reasons for Potiphar to be upset about this. First of all, I think there's a part of him that's like, okay, the story, I I get it, but it might be a little fishy, which is why Joseph isn't dead by the end of the story, right? Another part of this is Potiphar might be going, I did marry one of the wives of Egypt. She's kind of like, she'd be on a reality show someplace because she's got her own issues. But on top of it, he's going to lose all of the wealth that Joseph has brought by being in the home. He's made everything expand, and so he's going to lose it. And certainly part of this is just going to be—Potter feels very insulted by the whole scenario. And so once again, Joe finds himself in a pit, right? And there he could be thinking, where's the justice, right? Where is God's reward for my faithfulness? Like, I actually said, God, I'm not going to do this, and I stood up to her, and now I'm in trouble again for doing all of that. Where is the Lord? Well, it says, the Lord was with Joseph, verse 21, now in the prison. And it was there that he shows him his faithful love. See, what I appreciate about this part of the story is Joseph does what's right, and there's no miraculous deliverance for him, right? There's no clarifying menu where God's like, a memo where God's like, okay, Joseph, I'm gonna put you here, but here's the thing that's gonna happen next. He doesn't get the advance notice of where the story's gonna go. There's real weight, there's real pain, there's real helplessness and harshness and everything else. But once again, it's this idea that the Lord is present with Joseph. The story isn't clear, the ending isn't obvious, but God is anonymous and acting behind the scenes. And it's that sense of presence and faithfulness of love that somehow joseph has like a connection to that and it gives him what he needs to be stable and strong in a circumstance because he doesn't shut down he doesn't act out instead he does something that is such a valuable lesson for all of us he's like in this prison i will bloom where i'm planted I will find a way to find the good, even in the bad. I will find joy in the heartbreak and hardship. That's the space he enters into. And from that, we see this average Joe is also an inmate who has God on his side. It says, the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. In this weird? Like I'm sold into slavery and become a favorite of Potiphar. And now I'm in jail, but now the prison warden likes me. And before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. And the warden had no more worries. He probably went, what can I eat like everybody else? I don't know. He says, I had no worries because Joseph took care of everything and the Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. See, why this is valuable to me uh, is that he's making the best of his life by making life better for the people around him. And I want to say that again, he's making the best of his life by making life better for the people around him. He could just as easily be bitter, cold, aloof, everything else in this space, but he doesn't do that. And it's a good reminder to all of us that, you know what, uh, when things are bad, it's very easy to just look at our problems, our issues, our circumstance, and not really try to export value to others, but just waiting for somebody to import value to us. But he doesn't wallow in that space. He realizes that real life getting comes from real life giving. Real life getting comes from real life giving. And so he's giving himself away. We see this as an average Joe who has concern for others. So sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended the royal master. And so Pharaoh was angry with them. And where do you go? To jail like everybody. So they remained in prison for quite some time, and the captain of the guard uh, uh, assigned them to Joseph who looked after them. And while they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night. And the dreams they had, they knew they had meaning, but when they woke up the next morning, they were very upset, and they're like, man, we don't know what to do with this. We don't know where to go, what to think, what to do, right? We had these dreams, but we can't make heads or tails of what they mean. Now, in my home, the women of my home love talking about dreams a lot. Right? They wake up in the morning. I had this dream, and I had that dream. There are times where Ellen wakes up from a dream, and she's mad at me because in the dream, I did something. And she's like, I'm mad at you right now. You did this in my dream. I'm like, that's you doing that to you in your dream because that's in your skull. That's not me. All right? So they love to talk about dreams. Dudes, I don't find guys sit around and talk about dreams as much. Like, I don't meet with Scott on Tuesday mornings at 8.15 and go, dude, I had a dream last night. You know? He's like, me too. Let's talk about a dream. That doesn't happen. But apparently in prison, these guys are talking about their dreams. Right? And so they're distraught, but Joe has some experience with dreams, which allows him to become this unique witness for God. He says, interpreting dreams is God's business. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. What I love about this part is he doesn't take credit for his abilities, right? He's getting better, like early on when he had a dream, you're all gonna bow to me. But now you see he's getting tempered. The rough edges are getting kind of sanded off. And so he says, you know what, I, I, God can do this. I, I can't do it, but God can do it through me. So tell me your dreams. So first, it's the dream of the cupbearer. And he says, well, I had this dream where there was this vine, and there was these three branches, and on there, there was clusters of grapes. And I took the grapes, and I squeezed them into the cup of Pharaoh. What does it mean? And Joseph says, well, let me tell you, the three branches represent three days. And within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up and restore you to your position as the chief cupbearer. So he's listening to this and he gives the best Napoleon dynamite. Yes, right? I'm going back to work. Joseph says, but here's the thing I'm gonna ask you to do, right? Please remember me and do me a favor when things go well for you. Mention me to Pharaoh that he might let me out of this place for I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of the Hebrews, and now I'm here in prison and I did nothing to deserve it, right? So he goes, just remember me. Well, then the other guy, the baker's like, oh, do me, do me. You did him, do me. And so Joseph says, okay, tell me the dream. He says, all right, well, I had these like three baskets of, of stuff that you would put Pharaoh's food in and they were on top of my head. And then there was the one on the very top and it had some unique goodies in it for Pharaoh. And all of these birds were coming and eating out of the basket. So what does it mean? And I think Joseph's like, first of all, you shouldn't have edibles before you go to sleep because that's a weird dream, right? There's all kinds of stuff going on in there. He says, but let me tell you what the dream means. The three baskets also represent three days. And three days from now, Pharaoh will lift you up, impale your body on a pole, and the birds will come and peck away at your flesh. Dude shouldn't have asked about the dream, right? Like, just never mind. That's, it's going to be a long three days for that dude after that, right? For sure. It says in verse 23 of chapter 40, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer forgot all about Joseph, though, never giving him another thought. So, one guy's getting out and going back to work. The other guy's getting out and going to his death. But Joseph's still stuck for days, weeks, months, years, and nothing. I'm doing what you want me to do, God. I'm being faithful to your calling. Uh, What's the deal? Why don't you care? Why don't you love me? I've been pure. I've been innocent. I've been obedient. And nothing's changing. But see, he doesn't do that. He stays focused, he stays faithful and one day his faithfulness is remembered. Genesis chapter 41. Two full years later, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing on the bank of the Nile River. And he has these two different dreams. One about like big fat cows, seven of them, that come out of the Nile and they're eaten by seven skinny cows, which is weird. And then another one about like big plump stalks of grain and then seven kind of spindly sad stalks of grain. And, And Pharaoh was like, I don't know what to do with all of this. And so the next morning, Pharaoh was very disturbed by the dreams, and so he called for the magicians and wise men of Egypt, and he told them about the dreams, but no one can tell him what on earth they were about. But then finally, the king's chief cupbearer spoke up, and he says, Today I have been reminded of my failure. Right? Some time ago, you were angry with me. You threw me into prison along with our other fellow that is now dead and impaled. And we were there in the palace of the captain of the guard. And on this one night, when we each had a dream... We all tried to figure out the meaning, and there was this young Hebrew man in the prison who was a slave of the captain of the guard, and we told him our dreams, and he told us what each of our dreams meant, and everything happened just as he predicted. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once, and he was quickly brought from the pit. So, tossed into a pit, removed from a pit. Tossed into a pit, removed from the pit. Wash, rinse, and repeat is Joseph's life. Right? It's been rough. Life has just been the pits for Joseph, really, for the most part, Right? but now things are going to change. And as he's coming out, man, if you're smart, if you're wise, if you're prudent, you're gonna toe the line. You're gonna tell Pharaoh what he wants to hear because you've been in the clink for a while. You don't wanna go back into that space. Just tell him what he wants him to hear, right? Just, just, Just do whatever this Pharaoh pleases at this point. Is that gonna be Joseph? Not necessarily. Even in all of this, with his second or even third chance, he is still faithful and fearless. So after he shaved and changed his clothes, he went in and stood before Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night, and no one else can tell me what it means. And I've heard that you can do this thing called dream interpretation, so why don't you do that for me? He says, well, I don't know how to break it to you, but it is beyond me to do this. But God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. See, here's what's cool to me about that. Here's this guy, literally just out of jail, is standing before the most powerful person in the world. And the most powerful person says, hey, I hear you can do this. And he says, mm, no, I can't. He corrects him. And not only does he correct him, but then he says, but my God can do this. My God can sense your mind at ease. And then he's gonna tell Pharaoh, not what Pharaoh wants to hear, but what God wants Pharaoh to hear. So he's courageous, man. He's still standing up for God, even though it might cost him to do the right thing. But in this, he's insightful. He says, both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he's about to do. The seven healthy cows and the seven healthy heads of grain both represent the seven years of prosperity. But then the seven skinny, sad, sickly cows and the seven weak bits of grain, they are gonna be seven years of famine. This will happen just as I described, for God has revealed to Pharaoh in advance what he is about to do. As for having two similar dreams, it means that these events are about to be decreed by God, and he will soon make them happen. So Joseph's putting it all on God. God has told, God is revealing, God will decree. And he takes no credit for this. He's like, I don't have this skill set. God has done this for me, so I take no credit, but I am going to take the opportunity to give you some advice. Therefore, he says... Pharaoh should find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh should appoint supervisors of the land and let them collect one-fifth of the crops during the seven good years, have them gather gather all that food into uh, storehouses and store it away, and guard it so there will be food in the cities. That way, there will be enough to eat when the seven years of famine come to the land of Egypt. Otherwise, this famine will destroy everything. So he gets his vision from God as a dreamer, but he's also a leader. So he's like, hey man, here's some plans. Here's some policies. Here's some ways you can navigate this, right? Just blowing everybody's mind. Answers and solutions, all while giving God the credit. From this, Joseph goes from a dude that was just in jail a few hours ago to being radically elevated, it says, Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and the officials. So Pharaoh asked the officials, Where can we find anybody else like this man? Obviously, he's filled with the Spirit of God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has revealed the meaning of these dreams to you, clearly no one else is intelligent or as wise as you. You will be in charge of the court of my whole empire. Everybody's going to take orders from you. Outside of my job is number one. You are number two. And he was 30 years old when he began to serve in the court of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And when Joseph left Pharaoh's presence, he inspected the entire land of Egypt. you got to remember, Pharaoh has a God complex because Pharaoh thinks he's a God. But now he's listening to this dude who has a God that's far more powerful than Pharaoh. And he's actually acknowledging that the Spirit of God is working in this young man. So this is a big leap for Pharaoh. And then on top of this, you get Joseph again, who goes from prison to VP in minutes. Usually it's the other way. You become a politician, then go to prison. Here, he's prison, goes to be a politician, doing it backwards in the Bible like so many other things. But he's 30 years old at this point. When was he thrown into the pit and thrown into slavery and sold off by his brothers? When he was 17. So now he spent the next 13 years falsely accused, wrongly incarcerated, unjustly handled. And yet throughout, what's he do? He remains a person of quality. He doesn't let the conditions break him, make him cynical, or make him sinful. He doesn't let any of that happen. He just continues to stay the course of what God has called him to do. Now this is where I want to stop for a minute and unpack why I think he's so unique. And in one sense, average because he's accessible to all of us, but he's extraordinary in how he is using his skills and abilities and circumstances for God's glory. Here's the first thing I think it's interesting about him. Um, He, in the story, never actually hears the audible voice of God. Which we always, we read the Bible and read these characters and we're always thinking like, they're all just like having chit-chats with God all the time. But never in the story does God say, Joseph, I am with you or go say to Pharaoh. Like it's not, he sees dreams, but dreams are tricky. He can interpret dreams, but there's never this sense where he has this like full on conversation with God. So the reminder that the Lord was with him was not like, and he was always hearing from him. He didn't know the full story. He didn't know where he was always gonna go. He didn't know how it was gonna end, any of that stuff. But he was just reminded, God is with you. And it's the same thing for us, man. We don't know what's happening next. We don't know what comes tomorrow. We don't know the full scope of what we're gonna face in life. But you gotta remember, the Lord is with you. You might be silent at times, but he's present. Another thing about Joseph that I love is that, is that even though everything was going wrong in his world at times, he continued to do what was right, right? He didn't let the wrongs of life cause him to get away with th- then saying, I can do wrong because, hey man, they're treating me bad, so I'm gonna treat them bad. He doesn't do that. At every turn, he continues to do the right thing. The third thing about this that I love is that technically he's not a prophet, He's not a religious leader Joe is a working stiff man He's a government employee He's a bureaucrat But he's a bureaucrat who constantly Injects his witness into his work He's constantly injecting God into what he does And in the same way we all go out into our community We volunteer we work we ever else And the question is just man how are you bringing God To what it is you do Because that's what Joseph models to us He was bringing God to what he did And then the last thing about Joseph that I think is a good lesson for us is it's clear he was a victim of injustice. But he never treats himself like a victim. He never cries victim. He never blames people or culture or country or systems or unbelievers. He doesn't blame anybody. He doesn't even blame God when God is orchestrating the story, right? He still gives God the positive credit. He never gives God the criticism. It's a great reminder. And so in the story, while evil was overt and the plan of God was covert, man, it's still working itself out to an agenda and a goal. And we see that as Joe is vindicated. As predicted, for the seven years, the land produced bumper crops. And during that time, Joseph gathered everything just like they were supposed to do. And then at last, the seven years came to a close. And then with that, there was the seven years of famine that began just as Joseph predicted. And the famine also struck all the surrounding countries, but throughout Egypt there was plenty of food, all the surrounding countries being also his previous homeland. Therefore, when Jacob, his dad, heard that grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why are you standing around, you idiots? Right? Why don't you do something about this? Right? I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we will die. So just and ten brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain. And since Joseph was the governor of Egypt and in charge of selling grain to the people, it was to him that his brothers came. And when they arrived, they bowed down with their faces to the ground. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And he remembered the dream that he had had about them many years ago a bunch of little bundles of wheat bowing to a great wheat, all the stars bowing to him. It's like, well, 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 fellas. Flip-flop's on the other foot now, ain't it, boys? Right? You don't like my dreams, but now welcome to your nightmare, man, because you are bowing to me. Love it. It's like teeing up the shot. And this is the moment where he can say, I told you, fellas, you suckers. You're going to find a pit now. just as you found a pit for me. But instead, after he strings his brothers a bit in the story, he reveals himself to his estranged family. He says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? It's been so long, he doesn't even know. But his brothers were speechless, and they were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing in front of them. And so he says, please come closer. And so they came closer, and then he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. Off with their heads. No, he doesn't say that. He says something super bizarre. He says, don't be upset, and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me into that place. Like, that's Jesus-level stuff in the Old Testament, man. It is, right? He could have just said, you know what, guys? You owe me an apology. You know you did wrong. Instead, he wants to ease their burden. See, that's the thing he knows. That's the thing we should all know. If your heart holds on to bitterness, resentment, hurt, and victimization, it just puts you in a pit right and he doesn't want to be in that pit so he does the opposite he is speaking words of blessing and then from that he does acts of goodness and generosity he says not only this you can live in the land of Goshen where you can be near me with all of your children and your grandchildren and your flocks and your herds and everything you own i will take care of you there for there are still 5 years of famine ahead so he goes way out of his way not just like you can have some grain like no i'm going to oversee you i'm going to take care of you i will watch over you It's so much like what Jesus teaches 1,800 years later, where you exchange love for hate, grace for envy, care for cruelty. And short, he uses his power and his privilege to serve his enemies as opposed to serve his ego. He doesn't have to get his way. He just wants to do the right thing. And so how does the story conclude? With perspective. He says, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me into that place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive. So it was God who sent me, not you. For he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh. So hurry back to my father and tell him, This is your son Joseph. He lives and he's made me master over the land of Egypt. Do not be afraid of me. Am I God? Can I hurt you in any way? Can I punish you? No. He says, you might have intended it for evil, but God intended all of it for good. See what I love about this, and this is where I'll wrap it up. When life is hard, unfair, people treat you poorly and everything else, it's really easy to ask why. Why did this happen? Why are you doing this? Why is this unfair? Whatever else. Joseph never does that. He's like, you know what? The why doesn't matter. God did it. right? I don't understand how it works, whether he caused it or allowed it. It doesn't matter. He's like, but God did it. And the question is not, why is it happening? The question is, how should we react when it happens? And what Joseph tells us is that our how should be, you know what? Uh, how can I help others even in this hard space? How can I give myself away versus wallow and soak in my own self-pity? How can I do what God has called me to do no matter what the conditions? And how can I show the generosity and grace of God to people who may not show generosity and grace toward me and in all of it how can i give god the credit as i do it let's go ahead and pray together if you're in this room today or you're watching online and you're not a follower of jesus but you see sense that man i i want to have a god in my life like joseph did who is present who is working even though i may not fully realize and you've wanted that in your life you sense the need of that in your life Today is the day where you say, you know what, Jesus, I confess my sin to you. I turn to your grace. I turn to your forgiveness. I know you died for me so that I could live in and through you. You make that your prayer in your way, and you join the family. You're touched by a unique grace that transforms your life, and we would love to know about that. So there's a number that will be on the screen when you open your eyes or an app, tile in our app that you can tap and say, I made that decision. We would love to know about that. And Jesus, for the rest of us, help us to live like a Joseph. Help us to be what you want us to be, to do what you want us to do, to not let the harm of life make us jaded, but rather may we flourish in the harm of life knowing that you are with us. Help us to be faithful and to trust you, to be dreamers and leaders of your grace and your gospel and your good name. Amen.